This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching CNN's coverage of General Colin Powell, who's died at the age of 84 from complications related to COVID-19. And another top story today takes us live to the House of Commons in London, where British lawmakers are about to pay tribute to Sir David Amos, who was killed on Friday while meeting voters. Sir David, who was 69, was a member of Boris Johnson's ruling Conservative Party. Let's bring in Fred Plytgen. He joins us now from London. Fred, I do believe we're looking at live pictures there of the lobby ahead of what's going to be prayers and a minute's silence. But for now... I'll bring you in just so that you can tell us what's been going on this weekend in terms of tributes and what we're expecting today. I believe we're going to hear from the Prime Minister himself in the next hour too. Yeah, we certainly are, Julia. We certainly are going to hear from Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, as you said, um, Sir David Amos, he was part of uh, uh, Boris Johnson's political party, the Conservatives here in this country. But of course, the tragedy um, that happened here last Friday uh, as Sir David Amos was uh, stabbed to death as he was actually meeting with constituents doing that very important work. Um, that politicians do here in this country and so many other countries uh, as well, and which is so important for democracy to function. That is, of course, something that has really taken this country aback. There have been a lot of tributes that have not only been happening this weekend by fellow politicians here in the United Kingdom, but of course also something that's really gone on around the world, where you've had governments from uh, other countries who have given their condolences. Also, for instance, from the U.S., House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has done so uh, as well. So there is a lot of sorrow, but at the same time, of course, there is also a big discussion as to how this country, and that's also really a, a question internationally as well, how to keep politicians safe while ensuring that they are able to do their jobs, which is, of course, in many ways, that interaction with the public to be there for the constituency uh, that, that they have. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think that we'll hear uh, in some of these tributes uh, that are going to be going on today, after we hear that moment of silence, and be before there is going to be that uh, procession going to St. Margaret's Church uh, at Westminster Abbey, is that I think a lot of people are going to speak about Sir David Amos and how important it was for him to have that interaction, how important it was for him uh, to have those causes that he supported to be there for his constituents uh, and to be able to speak face-to-face -face with them in a very normal setting. Because one of the things, of course, that's also being discussed right here, right now, is also more security, for instance, for members of parliament. Also, when they're in their constituencies, how would that uh, be uh, uh, differ or make the, the political process here different? Will it make it more difficult for people to speak to their constituents? Will some people have inhibitions then? Will it distance members of parliament or would it from their constituencies? And it's really a question that I've seen uh, across media here in this country and from top politicians throughout this entire weekend and well into early this morning. How do you keep the political process upright? How do you keep that interaction upright at the same time keeping people safe? Because of course, Julia, and we've been pointing this out as well, this is already the second time that a member of parliament in this country has been killed in the past five years. And, and that's certainly something that is a, a great cause for debates here in this country, obviously a lot of sorrow, but also a, a great cause of debates as to how to move forward at this point in time. Again, to make sure that the political process, which is of course a very open, a very transparent one, and one that depends on interaction, but at the same time keeping people safe as well, Julia. 
Yes, I'm just showing our viewers now images uh, of members of parliament meeting in the House of Commons. And those are live pictures that you're seeing there as we await this moment of silence. Um, and Fred, you raised some very good points, as you say, uh, a combination here of one, remembering someone who's donated and given 40 years of service to the British public and then the debate that's happened this weekend. And I also have been watching with some of those saying, um, I'm going to stop speaking now, actually, and listen in to the prayers. Now, let's listen in to what's going on in the House of Commons. Honouring Sir David Amos, the Honourable Member for South End West, colleague and friend, may the bright memory of his rich life ever outshine the tragic manner of his death. Let us keep silence. Thank you. I'm sorry the House is returning in such tragic circumstances. Since we last met, we have lost two outstanding friends and colleagues, Sir David Amos and James Brokenshire. I know honourable and right honourable members from all parts of this House will share my deep sadness at their loss and will want to join me in sending heartfelt condolences to their families. The circumstances of Sir David's death were despicable and the raise of the most fundamental issues about how members of this House are able to perform our vital democratic responsibilities safely and securely. In light of the ongoing police investigation, I will not say more about the event, but I give the House my undertaking that I will do everything within my power to ensure that these issues are treated with urgency and with the sense of priority that they deserve. I know that whatever political differences there are in the House, all members want to ensure not just that we and our staff are able to work safely, but that our democracy itself, with local Member of Parliament at the heart of our constituency, is able to function securely. On that, I know the House is united. The House will want to pay tribute to both Sir David and Sir James, and I hope it will be useful if I set out how I expect us to be able to do so. On Wednesday, after Prime Minister's questions, there will be an opportunity for tributes to be paid to James Brokenshire. Today's planned substantive business in the Chamber and the Westminster Hall will not be proceeded with. Instead, we will have Home Office questions, followed by an opportunity to pay tributes to Sir David Amis 
on a motion for adjournment to be opened by the Prime Minister. At 6pm, there will be a service of prayer and remembrance to commemorate Sir David at St Margaret's Church. I expect the House to adjourn approximately at 5.30pm for those members who wish to attend the service, then to proceed from this chamber to St Margaret's. I know many, many members want to speak, and if we can bear that in mind, it will help us all that we get it on the record. And just to say, there will be books of condolence for members to sign, along with staff as well. So please, let us now move to questions to the Home Secretary. We now come to, we now come to Cheryl Murray. One, please, Mr Speaker. Home Secretary. And we'll leave the House of Commons there and the Speaker of the House of Commons there paying tribute and remembering the life of Sir David Amos there, paying tribute to his work, I think, Fred. As we were discussing there and as the Speaker mentioned, there's two things here. There is remembering the life and the work of Sir David Amos, but as you also pointed out, there will be questions to be asked, and he mentioned it there, about the safety and the work and the, the duties that the MPs undertake during their day and, and how best we protect them going forward. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, listening to uh, Sir Lindsay Hall, I think it was it was certainly the case that you could tell um, that this is something that is of fundamental importance to this country and, of course, to democracies around the world. There's two um, sort of phrases uh, that, that, that he used that I've jotted down here. He said vital democratic functions, really the essence of what democracy is all about, is members of parliament, politicians being able to meet their constituencies, being to hear, able to hear from their constituencies what their worries are, what their cons- concerns are, but doing that, obviously, in a way that is safe for these politicians uh, as well. And then he said um, the democracy itself to function securely. So it is really the essence of of the political process here in this country, and of course in many other countries as well. And I think it was really quite interesting uh, to hear over the past couple of days, especially this weekend, uh, after the tragic events unfolded, you heard people like uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, he was saying that he doesn't want to see any knee-jerk reactions after this takes place. In other words, he doesn't want uh, politicians uh, to all of a sudden get large amounts of security or, or, or be too distant from their constituents. Of course, these questions have to be asked. He said he doesn't want any knee-jerk reactions in that case. Also heard from Dominic Robb, the Foreign Secretary, uh, this morning on several uh, British outlets, where he also said he does believe that something needs to be done to ensure security, to make security better. But at the same time, of course, you do have to have those face-to-face interactions. And one of the things that he said, he said, look, if you go into your constituencies and all of a sudden you have a big security detail with you, are some of the constituents that you have still willing to speak to you face-to-face, still willing to speak their mind the way that they would if they would be in one-on-one meetings without security presence? So really, these are really very big and very important questions. And one of the things that was also raised this weekend, which I think is also going to be important in this country, in this debate going forward, is also a lot of the online hate that a lot of politicians, of course, not just politicians face, and how that could also contribute uh, to some of the violence that we've seen, of course, not in this country, but also in other countries uh, as well. Again, you have a situation here uh, in Britain, in the United Kingdom, where you've had two members of parliament killed within uh, the past five years, of course, under tragic circumstances. Of course, both of those uh, are being uh, invested, especially the, uh, the case of, uh, of, of the gentleman who uh, is alleged to have killed uh, um, Sir David Amos. Um, but at the same time, of course, there are big fundamental questions uh, that are going to need to be addressed and that are going to be asked moving forward. And I think you can already see that process taking place while at the same time, of course, we are in the somber moment where you have the tributes uh, coming in right now. You're going to have that service later on today. Of course, that is something that takes precedent at this point in time, Julia. 
You're right. Tomorrow we'll continue to ask those questions. Today is about Sir David Amos himself and um, a tribute to his life and work. And we will continue to cover that here on CNN throughout the coming hours. For now, Fred, thank you. Fred Plykin there in London. Stay with us. More to come. Welcome back to First Move, a muted Monday for global stocks. Consolidation, I would call it, after gains last week that put the Dow less than 1% away from records. Europe coming off its best week since March of this year too. The challenge, rising global bond yields. That's driving the cautious tone, I think, here. As investors price in less central bank support going forward, U.S. benchmark yields trading above 1.6%. That's the 10-year U.S. yields to levels not seen since June's volatility, if you remember. And we saw yields spike back then. European yields also pushing higher, too. It's certainly a global story. It's a combination of supply chain pressures and energy price rises. And there's further concern today in the natural gas market amid chatter that Russia's Gazprom may not increase supplies to Europe as President Putin suggested they might last week. Rising energy prices, supply shortages also led to a softer Chinese GDP number than expected. The world's second largest economy reporting 4.9% growth year on year for the third quarter. That's actually the slowest pace in a year. Much of this slowdown, however, has been engineered by Beijing to meet things like climate goals, quell rising property prices and curb the powers of big tech. Joining us now, Leyland Miller, CEO of China Beige Book. Leyland, great to have you on the show. I have to say, for all the analysts out there that are saying this is a disappointing number, there's no surprise on your side, I think, because you've been talking about this all year. Well, that's right. It's not a disappointing number because Mm. a higher number shouldn't be a better number. Uh, right now, look, the, you have these compa- basic comparison issues from 2020. So this is this weird window where the Chinese government can actually announce sort of whatever number it wants without being overjudged by the market. And I think what Beijing did this time around was announce a number much lower than what they could have put out there. Uh, China GDP, it's, it's aggregate growth. It's not productive growth. So if they wanted to juice it, they could have announced a larger number. They didn't. And that's a signal of, of, of where they're going uh, going forward. Where are they going forward? Because you raise a great point. You, you have to take this number with a little bit of a pinch of salt. Quite frankly, China will announce whatever growth number they feel comfortable with. And this is them basically saying, look, this is a good number, given all the challenges. And where is it when we're talking about productive employment as well, because I always feel like the trigger for them is where's the growth that we're seeing that can maintain the level of employment that we need? Otherwise, we start stimulating again. Julia, that's exactly the the, the right uh, area of the economy to be focusing on. When we look at the performance of the Chinese economy right now, you know it doesn't look good. And you know there's a there was basically a flat growth from from Q2 to Q3. That's exactly what we saw in China Beige Book data. So that's not surprising. What's surprising to markets, it seems, is that this uh, this this weakness in the data hasn't been responded to with some sort of stimulus, aggressive stimulus, uh, RR cuts, whatever it might be. And the, re- the reaction to this uh, sh- should be one relief that, that that's that China's uh, old playbook is breaking down, but also a realization that, that things aren't quite as bad uh, as they seem from the government's point of view. You ask about growth. 
Our overall job growth is still looking okay. Manufacturing job growth is looking is slowed down a lot, but it's still okay. Services job growth, which has gotten harangued by people because they thought COVID and supply chain breakdowns were, were crushing services. No, look, services job growth is doing okay. So when the government looks at these numbers, they're not looking at some ag, some GDP number to try to figure out whether they're whether they're going to panic. They're looking at jobs, and the job situation in China is actually okay right now, and that's why you're not seeing big stimulus. I mean, and I mentioned in the introduction here, a lot of this is engineered too. I mean, we know that supply chains are challenging all around the world. We know that there's a power crunch going on in China and they're ramping up uh, coal production in order to perhaps offset some of that as well. But the other things are about them tinkering with the economy, taking some of the steam out of the property sector, um, challenging some of the powers of big tech. Um, they're very conscious, I think, of inequality, wealth gaps. It's about tinkering with the economy and, and surely this should be a good thing. It's it's about quality growth as opposed to the magnitude. That 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 that's what it is about. And you know, Western economists have been have been lecturing the Chinese for years and years and years. You know, you need to have slower, healthier growth and stop relying on so much debt, which of course is hypocritical. Uh, but look, what we're <laughs> seeing right now is is Beijing is Beijing de-risking parts of its economy. Earlier in 2021, we saw significant de-risking of the financial sector, and and we look at our credit gauges. Borrowing has just gone down, down, down. The credit tightening has been has been across every sector, every cohort, every size firm throughout 2021. You move deeper into 2021, and you see the property sector de-risking. You know, Evergrande didn't happen on an island. Things got tough in the property sector because from on top they said, "Look, you can't use unlimited amounts of debt anymore." So this has been a de-risking throughout. 2021 uh, from the very top, and the fact that they're they're announcing lower numbers in response to this de-risking is all very positive. I think. Anything to fear, very quickly, and in systemic terms, by what we're seeing in the property sector and, and Evergrande, it's not the only property developer that's that's had some challenges. Uh, I'm not worried about Evergrande because Evergrande is a property distress story, not a financial sector distress story. Right. What is worrisome from the from the macro uh, outlook is whether there's a growth driver to replace property going forward. And that is that is nowhere obvious uh, in any of our data or, or, or anywhere across the Chinese economy right now. Yeah. So it's not a financial systemic risk, but it's about future growth and, and how they're going to offset perhaps the slowdown in the property sector. We'll reconvene mm -hmm. on this conversation. Leyla, great to chat to you as always. Leyla Melissa of China Beige Book. And thank you for bearing with us with some of the delays today. OK, up next, 10,000 new Facebook posts for Europe. The tech giant hires for the metaverse with Brussels in mind. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. Metaverse mega hire. Facebook plans to recruit 10,000 people in Europe over the next five years. They will help develop, quote, the Metaverse, the company's newest product. It's a virtual reality world that would allow users to interact online. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, you get the best jobs. Let's set the Metaverse aside for a second and just explain the jobs, because it makes sense to me for Facebook to be targeting Europe, given how active the regulators are there. But which country specifically? Is it Europe well, or the EU? Yes, very much the EU, not mm. Europe, i.e. not the UK, no jobs uh, for here. But it was really interesting. As soon as I saw the headline, 10,000 jobs over the next five years in the EU, you think, as you did, interesting, because they've had a rough ride here in the EU, haven't they? Particularly given the EU commission and their antitrust probes into a variety, frankly, of US tech companies, 
But most recently in June, they launched an investigation into Facebook. Uh, Ireland recently slapped WhatsApp with a massive 225 million euro fine, which Facebook uh, are appealing. And they want to hear from the whistleblowers. They've invited them to appear uh, in the EU Parliament in November. So while this is very much Facebook investing in the EU and in jobs, it's also on the flip side going to hopefully make Europe more invested in Facebook and their future. I've just been told you've got one minute, Anna. Better and better. So now you have to explain to a mesmerised audience what on earth is the metaverse and what does one require in order to work in it? Great. I've got about 30 seconds then to, to, to tell you all about the metaverse. I imagine there was a huge spike in search engines of people typing in, what is the metaverse? If you took it to its absolute extreme, we are talking about the matrix, living your life virtually online. I can see you, Julia, as an avatar shopping in a virtual shopping mall for your avatars, virtual outfit, using, of course, cryptocurrency. You would love that. Uh But what we're talking about here is a much more blended experience, really. And some of us have actually already dipped our toes into the metaverse using VR and AR, whether it's multiplayer games, whether it is socializing online or attending a virtual conference. This is the blend we're looking at. And Facebook are not the only company that are really invested in this. Lots of game developers like Epic Games, Roblox, uh, and also Chipmaker and NVIDIA, all very keen on this space. I think there is something here, but possibly not too extreme, at least not for me. I'm not joining the Matrix anytime soon. Julia? Good job, Anna Stewart. I don't know where I got this <laughs> reputation as being a shopaholic from. It's deeply inappropriate, <laughs> Anna Stewart. Thank you very much for that. We will see you tomorrow. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson. It's next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.